By downloading or listening to this podcast, you are agreeing to Moody's legal terms and conditions found at moody's.com slash disclaimer, including that the information provided is not investment or financial advice, and that Moody's will not be liable for losses arising from your use of the information. to Moody's Talks, The Big Picture, the podcast that brings you the latest insights and perspectives from Moody's analysts across the globe on the key credit and economic issues facing the fixed income markets. I'm Sarah Carlson, a Senior Vice President with Moody's Sovereign Risk Group based in Paris, and I'm your host for this episode. And our topic today is inequality. Now, inequality isn't a new subject. It's been on the rise in advanced markets for decades. It's been a longstanding issue in emerging markets. And some countries that have previously not had explicit policies trying to address the issue have started doing so. I'm thinking specifically of China's common prosperity agenda. But from a Moody's perspective, we've been looking at the issue more closely. And for the first time, we've included it as one of our global credit themes for the year ahead. And I'm really pleased that I've got two Moody's colleagues joining me today to discuss the topic. We'd like to welcome Susan Fitzgerald, a senior member of the public finance team who focuses on higher education. Good morning, Sarah. I'm really looking forward to an engaging conversation on this important topic. And also Gabrielle Torres, who's one of my colleagues in the Sovereign Risk Group based in New York, who's written on the intersection of country risk and inequality. Hi, Sarah. So happy to be here. Well, thank you both for joining. I'd like us to start off with just an overview. As I said during the intro, inequality is not a new issue. But Gabrielle, could you talk a little bit about what has changed recently and some of the dynamics in some countries that has caused it to become more of a focus? I think, as you point out, it's not new. We could probably be talking about the historical roots of inequality, you know, going back decades, centuries, and so forth. But it's more and more in the news for a variety of circumstances, Uh, some of them not related directly to what we would consider income inequality, episodes of injustice across the world and so forth. And populations across the world are becoming more demanding of what they want. And part of it is that in many cases, they want reduced inequality. So now it's out there and people are asking governments to react to it. And what are some examples that maybe listeners haven't heard so much about? Well. We have seen inequality as an issue across the whole world. It is interesting to see that there's very large differences between different types of countries. Emerging markets, as a general rule, tend to have higher income inequality than advanced economies. But there are very large differences. Countries like the Czech Republic and Slovenia or Ukraine, for example, have among the lowest income inequality levels across the world, not just among emerging markets. And on the other extreme, you have countries like South Africa or Namibia, many countries in sub-Saharan Africa with very high inequality, but levels similar to countries like the United States. So it's not something that is a clear-cut advanced economy versus emerging market. Thanks, Gabrielle. Now, Susan, Gabrielle just mentioned the U.S., and I know that's your primary area of focus. The Biden administration has talked a great deal about inequality. There are the social infrastructure projects that the U.S. administration has proposed. What could be the impact 
of those kinds of policy proposals on levels of inequality in the U.S. specifically. Yes, Sarah, it's something obviously we're watching very closely. The Build Back Better proposal, if passed, could have positive impacts on inequality, although typically those will occur over time. It may not be an immediate issue. So for example, I think about higher education. Education is associated with higher earnings, but to get to improved education levels, you have to kind of start investing at the early stages of life, which is early childhood education. And as we saw during the pandemic, investment in things like broadband, right, so that students can continue their learning during disruptions. All of these are a confluence of factors that could have positive impacts on income inequality. But to Gabrielle's earlier point, it could take some time for us to really see that. Now, Susan, if we put Build Back Better to one side, are there other ways in which inequality is becoming more central to the policy debate in the U.S.? Oh, absolutely. I think as we started discussing, it's becoming just much higher profile across the board. There's a greater understanding of income inequality. I wouldn't say a great consensus necessarily on how to address it. It's still a very dynamic policy debate, and that will be ongoing. But I think just the awareness of it is fostering greater policy discussions and eventually will result in differing outcomes. And Gabrielle, what are you seeing in other parts of the world if we leave the U.S. to one side? Well, I think there's clear demands growing across the countries. Now, what's probably interesting is that we might see more examples of pressures in countries as they become richer. So it's not as simple as saying that a poor country with income inequality is more prone to having social demands, protests, what have you. But in many cases, once you've reached a certain threshold of development, it's when they demand more. And a recent example of this that's been in the news has been Chile which was for many years, decades actually, considered a great example of growth and success in Latin America and has been wracked by protests centered around inequality in the last two years. And Gabriel, I think that's an interesting point because part of why we're hearing about it more in terms of policy debate here in the U.S. is because the squeeze of the middle class, right, and the expectations of the middle class, not necessarily a rising voice among the lower income population. A point I would make there is that one interesting thing is it's a lot has to do with when you look at income inequality, it's not merely measuring income inequality for which we have many measures, indices produced by international organizations, so forth. It's also trying to figure out in which countries and which societies it will become a bigger issue than others. That's where we find it interesting because you see great diversity and, and difference. I gave the example of Chile. You know, not very far away from Chile is Paraguay, which is a country that's poorer and has almost across the board worse social indicators. And yet there's been very little protest there. So, yes, it, it's sometimes certain events trigger societies and they go on to demand and request big changes. Yeah, and I think that's really the issue right now here in the U.S. is are we at a tipping point? Are some of these very high profile cases that have come to light in recent years? Again, it's a longstanding issue, but in recent years, are we at a tipping point today? We'll find out. Well, Gabrielle and Susan, both of you have talked about sort of a confluence of events that has caused issues of inequality to be discussed more and more. And can think of a number of things. You know, the Black Lives Matter movement wasn't new, but certainly the greater prominence that it came to after the murder of George Floyd is one issue. But of course, there's also the pandemic that has generated 
some more debate, I think on a global basis, around issues of inequality. Gabrielle, can you give some examples of other ways in which the pandemic may have exacerbated or at least highlighted existing issues of inequality in the world outside the U.S.? There's a saying I heard that we are all in the same storm, but not in the same boat. And I think this applies to this pandemic crisis because we're all dealing with the impact of the virus, but we have very different resources to deal with it. And that's what we saw with what happened. So first and foremost, of course, the vaccine itself led to differences. And it's not just the vaccine, the health aspect of it. But in principle, the faster you get your population vaccinated, the faster you go to normal and the faster you start growing again. So what we saw across the world when we look at countries is that they had very different abilities to respond to the crisis. And that showed in all kinds of numbers, growth, vaccination, et cetera. And Gabriel, it's not just across countries, it's also within countries, as we've seen in the U.S., just different access to health care, to basic infrastructure, differing labor conditions. There are a lot of factors that lead to disparities that were exacerbated and brought to the forefront, really, by the pandemic. So I think to our earlier conversation, the pandemic is another fa- reason that these issues have come to the fore and are being addressed now in a way that they weren't before. Yeah, a key point that I probably would mention is the fiscal ability to respond. And not every country has that. The U.S., for example, was actually interesting in that poverty in the U.S. actually fell during the pandemic because the response from the U.S. government was so big. Very few countries in the world can afford to respond the way the U.S. government did. Well, that brings me to the next question I wanted to ask you both, which is, In what has it or in what ways has COVID actually represented a setback to some progress that was being made in reducing these kinds of inequalities? I have not seen updated numbers just from the last year of new income distribution, so that might take a while to see. But data that we do have access to, such as poverty, has generally grown across the world. I mentioned that the U.S. is an outlier in that they actually improve because of their ability. In some cases, there's numbers that will probably take a long time to measure. That is the impact on education. Millions of children across the world or students across the world were not allowed to go to school, obviously, or had to do with Zoom. In some cases, not even Zoom, you know, they don't have access to that technology. And what we know about the impact of education, sometimes it takes decades to play out. So clearly already we're beginning to see some differences and I suspect we'll see more over time. Yeah, Gabriel, I'll just follow up on that because obviously that's something I focus on a lot. And there was just a new study that came out yesterday that showed college enrollment rates by types of school. And I'm looking at the data right now. It looks like the immediate college enrollment rate fell to 45% for high poverty high schools in 2020 compared to 55% earlier. So that's a big drop in low poverty high schools the rate fell to 74%, just a little bit of a drop from 77%. So again, you see in the beginning numbers that disparity, but then the significant drop of college-going rate, depending on higher low poverty high schools, will play out over time. And Susan, is that something you would expect to persist over time, or is that likely to be a blip just caused by the interruptions to in-person learning because of COVID? Yeah, well, again, I think educational preparedness, right? This is not something we know today, but we will see over the next decade is how disruptive was COVID 
to educational preparedness, how does that impact college going rates? And then longer term, how does that impact economic growth in different countries? And are there interventions that can be made to reverse those impacts? Now, I think it's really interesting that you've both been focusing on education, thinking about the kind of long-term impact that that can have on societies, on economic growth. What about issues around healthcare access, housing access, and how they relate to inequality? Susan, I'd like to start with you on this. So are there things that we've learned as a result of COVID about a pandemic causing significant issues with access to these other key services? Yeah, well, I think it all goes back to the intersectionality of all of this, right? So if you don't have great health care, if you don't have good health, you can't pursue education. If you don't have stable housing or affordable housing, you actually have less access to health care. That's actually why we see some hospitals investing in affordable housing, because they know that unless they can follow through with their patients, unless their patients have stable housing, they're not going to have good healthcare outcomes. So I think it's the intersectionality of all of this that's so important. And COVID highlighted that. And I would add that in normal times, inequality has all kinds of impact that we're discussing, right? And people react to that. But all those impacts are exacerbated and amplified in the middle of a shock. Because then the starting point is now clearly seen as worse. If you were making less money than other people and you had a little less access to healthcare or maybe a lot less access to healthcare, but you were generally healthy and you had a job, that already was, you know, at least a positive starting point given the circumstances. But now you lose your job because of COVID or you have healthcare issues because of COVID and that lack of equality or lack of access to resources is amplified and made a lot worse. Right. And and we actually see that on a gender basis, too. So when we think about inequality, it cuts across all of these fronts, right? So did the pandemic have a greater impact on women because of kind of their traditional child care responsibility than it did on men? I think the indicators early on are, yes, it did. And then the question is, what are the longer term ramifications of that? Well, Susan, it's interesting that you say that because I've done some work on female labor force participation in Europe, have also looked at issues of inequality in Europe. And we did not see nearly as large an impact on female labor force participation that had any kind of lasting impact in Europe as a result of the pandemic. It's also, I think, important to note that you know, not only are levels of income equality much greater in Europe, but also healthcare access isn't quite the same issue. Education access is more equal and also not as many schools closed across Europe as we saw in the U.S. So it's interesting, even among some of the wealthiest countries in the world, the real differences that you can see in terms of those countries' experiences during this rather extraordinary period we're all living through. Absolutely. And as Gabriel said, this could take hundreds of years to kind of play out. So it's, it's not only an immediate factor, it, it has long legs. I agree. I mean, I think this is something that we're going to be talking about, certainly for the remainder of my career as an economist. Can we switch gears a little bit? We've been talking about inequality, why it might have increased, why we're talking about it more. But of course, part of our bread and butter at Moody's is talking about risk. And so I wonder if each of you could talk a little bit about 
what kind of risk inequality can pose to things like the economy, the financial health of a country, or specific entities. Gabrielle, I know you've done a lot of work on this in the past. Do you want to start? Sure. Income inequality is associated, and I use the word associated because establishing clear lines of causality, saying that inequality caused X, Y, and Z is very difficult. But we do see, and we, Moody's, and those that look at this more broadly, that income inequality in many countries across the world is associated with lower growth, with more political protest, with fiscal pressures as governments need to react. So all of these are from the perspective of us that focus on the risk of repayment of debt and the risk that can affect a country. All of this is exacerbated by income inequality. It's not linear. It's not automatic that as a country has higher income inequality, everything gets worse. But the correlation there is very strong. Right. And and I'll just chime in that it then affects broader swaths of the economy, right? So if we're talking about income inequality, it can affect consumption levels and that can affect demand for goods and services and corporations who provide those goods and services. It, it can have an impact there. And as we think about my sector, higher education, for example, it can impact demand for education or the need for colleges and universities to they themselves provide social infrastructure to support students, which can raise the costs of providing education. So it flows through not just at the sovereign level or at the local government level, but to the social infrastructure providers and to um, and to corporations. Well, that's really interesting. Now, what does the level of inequality tell us about the strength of institutions in a country, for example? Gabrielle, I take the point about, you know, we can't establish any kind of causation, but it does it give it us some clue about where institutional strengths and weaknesses may lie. And there is some correlation between countries that have stronger institutions tend to have somewhat lower income inequality. But that's not always the case, as we saw in the case of the United States and others. I think what stronger institutions give you are the tools to address income inequality if you so choose to do so. You have the ability to respond to social demands. The population feels that you're responding to it. And it's probably no accident, as you well know, that so many countries in Europe fall under this category of countries with higher institutions and lower income inequality because they have this ability. They're clearly responding. On the other extreme, I mentioned earlier in the podcast, countries in emerging markets that don't have the institutions much weaker and where income inequality is much, much higher. Well, that's absolutely true what you say about Europe. I mean, it's quite interesting when you look at the data for inequality in Europe. There can be big differences if you look at levels of inequality before taxes and other kinds of government programs and after. For example, Sweden, which I think everyone thinks of as being a very equal society because actually after taxes and transfers, it is. But before all of that happens, the level of inequality, if you just look at a very high level measurement, is higher than you would expect. And so European governments certainly use policy tools to try to address those sources of inequality. Final topic, just to wrap up for the day. What is something, Susan and Gabrielle, that you're both watching with regard to inequality that the listener might not be aware of? I mean, I'm happy to start. One of the things in the part of the world where I do most of my work, which is Europe, 
that people are going to be watching for the next few years is a program called Next Generation EU, which is a large program of infrastructure, which is aiming not specifically to deal with levels of income equality across the country, but certainly is looking at issues where it's relevant of inequality between regions, significant infrastructure investments, which can equalize access to things like digital technology. So really a kind of leveling up agenda, which has the potential to have a meaningful impact on growth. So that's one of the things we'll be watching here. Susan, what about you? Sure. So kind of on the immediate horizon, one of the things I'm watching is the path of inflation. Currently high, we're expecting it to taper over the course of the year. But if that does not occur, and there's some risks around that, then that could have a disproportionate impact on lower income populations, particularly if wages don't keep pace. And Gabrielle, what about you? There's a famous painting by Salvador Dali called The Persistence of Memory. So I'm going to borrow this from Dali and talk about the persistence of institutions. And what do I mean by this? When we talk about income inequality, we think of what governments do today. A lot of things we're talking about, tax policies, income policies, right? These are all very important. But a lot of academic research has found that they can identify today the impact of policies that were decided decades, in some cases, centuries ago. One paper I read could identify in Peru the impact on inequality on decisions on how to manage slavery in the Spanish Empire, which was, you know, 300 years before. So the point I'm trying to make is that as we think about inequality, we need to understand that a lot of what we debate today is the result of decisions taken many years ago. And whatever changes people may want to see happen will also take decades to play out. Well, that's all the time we have for today. Thank you very much to Susan and Gabrielle for joining us on The Big Picture. And thank you to you, our listeners. We will be back with you in the new year with our next episode. But for the moment, let me just wish you a very happy holidays. And we look forward to talking to you about big picture credit issues again in the new year. Thanks very much. Bye-bye.